0: Good morning and the conversation begins here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. It's cold out there. It's going to rain, it's going to snow, it's going to get disgusting later today. So matter where you go if you're starting your holiday shopping, take 94W with you. Dress warm and have fun. That's important to do this holiday season. And when we come back in just a bit, we're going to be talking with former campus revolutionary who sent his life in a very different direction when he graduated. We're going to be talking with Thomas Thomas Jones, his new book, From Willard Strait to Wall Street, a memoir. Memoirs and a whole lot more coming up here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. More in just a bit. And we're back. It's conversation. My name's Peter Solomon. Solomon. You're on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. And that public service announcement for Doctors Without Borders It's so important, this particular time of year in particular, in that we who have so much are asked to think about folks who have so little, and Doctors Without Borders addresses those people who have so little in terms of medical care. It's important consider supporting them. And I'm pleased to welcome now author Thomas W. Jones, his new book, From Willard Straight to Wall Street, a Memoir. Good morning, Thomas Jones. Good morning,
1: Peter. Thank you for inviting me.
0: My pleasure. The title, From Willard Street to Wall Street, what does it mean?
1: Well, in 1969, uh, you know, the cover of the book shows a photo of me. It was a Pulitzer Prize-winning photograph that was on the cover of Newsweek magazine. Uh, I'm carrying a rifle. I have a bandolier of bullets. I have a knife in my belt. This was a group of over 100 black students who had occupied a building at Cornell University. And uh, the photo was of us exiting the building after the occupation. So that's the from Willard Strait, Willard Strait Hall at Cornell University. And to Wall Street, um, you know, 50 years later, I was one of the most senior executives Uh, in the financial services industry on Wall Street.
0: Why the rifle and the knife, though?
1: Well, uh, it's a complicated story. Uh, It started out as a fight over black studies, typical uh, occupation of a uh, building at the university. You know, those kind of happened every day, every other day on some campus across America. In the 60s. Uh, then uh, a group of uh, fraternity guys, Delta Upsilon, uh, broke into the side of the building and decided they were going to throw us out. We fought with them. Uh, to me, this was, you know, my mind just flashed back. This was like a vigilante action. You know, it was like back in the 1870s after the Civil War. Uh, You know, when the blacks had been freed from slavery, but then the Ku Klux Klan was organized to intimidate and terrorize those freedmen, they were called. Uh, The Klan was organized to intimidate them from exercising uh, their voting rights and other civil rights. And so our reaction to this uh, fraternity break-in and attempt to throw us out of the building was that we armed ourselves in self-defense, which in the context of the times was was not extraordinary. I mean, remember this, uh, in the five year span leading up to 1969, President John Kennedy had been assassinated, Malcolm X had been assassinated, Martin Luther King had been assassinated, Robert Kennedy had been assassinated, there were riots, You know, raging in cities across America in the uh, you know 1965, 66, 67, 68. Uh, It was the America was a very violent country during that period, and it wasn't at all clear of what direction the country was going to take. You know, was it going to be a country of inclusion and equality with regards to civil rights? or was it going to be uh, a movement to the right of racial oppression and suppression? So uh, that was the context in which the events at Willard Strait Hall occurred.
0: What did you folks want though?
1: Uh, Well, it started out as a fight over uh, a black studies program to understand the truth of uh, what had happened to African-Americans uh, in America. You know, when, when I entered Cornell in 1965, uh, the, the black story, the African-American story of what had happened in America was not usually included uh, in the curriculum. Um, not at, at the collegiate level, it wasn't included in the American educational curriculum um, at the high school level. And if, you're, if you don't understand your story, Peter, if you don't understand who you are and where you came from and how you got to be where you are today, you're ignorant, and, and when you're ignorant, you're powerless. You have to understand the history of what's happened so that you can capture the positives out of that history and avoid repeating the negatives. So we wanted the story, the African-American story, to be part of the curriculum at Cornell University. That meant understanding, you know, having courses that explored what were the economics of slavery. Uh, You know, what was the structure of slavery uh, with regards to why were there laws that, that prohibited teaching the slaves to read and write? Uh, you know why was there a uh, a period after the Civil War where you know the Ku Klux Klan was intent upon preventing uh, African Americans, the newly freed slaves, from voting? Why were there things like the uh, the Jim Crow laws, which tried to dehumanize? african americans in the 18 late 1800s and early 1900s by saying that we couldn't use the same restrooms and we couldn't use the same water fountains and we couldn't ride on the same buses uh couldn't use the same public accommodations as uh as white americans you know why was there that kind of dehumanization uh, why were there incidents such as in the in the 1930s you know when america when franklin roosevelt you know structured the new deal to try to bring america out of the the depression in the 1930s there were significant programs uh aimed at uh, things like social security you know which was meant to provide at least a minimum wage a minimum uh, living standard to older Americans? Why was Social Security structured in such a way that most African Americans were excluded? You know, when Social Security was first put into law in the 1930s, certain occupations, such as a domestic worker and agricultural worker, were excluded occupations. Those tended to be the occupations which were most prevalently occupied by African-Americans during that period. You know, also in the 1930s, uh, you know, the housing laws, things like the Federal Savings and Loan Insurance Corporation um, in the programs to make mortgages available on a widespread, inexpensive basis to enable Americans to buy their homes. Well, those programs were structured in ways that most black neighborhoods were redlined and excluded from those programs, those federal housing programs. And so, you know, the housing purchase uh, opportunity, which has propelled many, many uh, Americans into the middle class, you know, home ownership is the primary asset owned by most American households. Well, those, those programs were designed and structured so that most black neighborhoods were excluded. So, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, 90 years later now, we have a huge wealth gap between the white and black communities in America. So understanding that history, uh, understanding what had happened to us, uh, having that as part of the curriculum, both at the collegiate level and then flowing on down to secondary schools, uh, that's, that's
0: what our fight was all about. I'm old enough or young enough, depending on how you want to look at it, to remember what went on in my high school about African-American history. And that was everybody gathered in the, in the auditorium during African-American History Week, and we all watched Dr. Cosby's special, Black History, Lost Straight or Stolen, and then we went back to the same old stuff. And while it was enlightening, most people didn't talk about it or really think about it.
1: Well, that was common and uh, but you know, but I, I also want you to understand my memoir is at its heart. It's a message of hope for America, because I actually believe that what happened in the 1960s was that America was at what I call a metaphorical fork in the road. you know, it could decide to continue its historical practices, which was going to lead to enormous conflict and violence because the African American community was not going to be as passive about that as it had been historically, or America could turn towards inclusion and equality, as difficult as that road might be. And so one of the messages in my memoir is that my personal life story is a microcosm of America's racial journey in the past 50 years, you know, from that image of guns at Cornell to, you know, uh, one of the top executives, one of the top black executives on Wall Street. And it's a message that all Americans should be proud of how far our country has come in those 50 years, even as we acknowledge how far we have yet to go. If you could have described America today to people back in the 1960s, most people would have said that's not possible. America could not change to that extent. But we have. We have. And this this country has achieved so much with regards to inclusion and racial progress. We ought to be proud of it even though it's not ideal, we have come a long ways. And so one of the reasons I wrote my book, Peter, is because um, I want the country, I hope I can contribute to that conversation where, where instead of having these, uh, these kind of divisions and this anger kind of shouting at each other over, over racial and social issues, I'm trying to put it into context and say, let's be proud
0: of how much we've accomplished, even
1: as we acknowledge we still have a ways to go.
0: Well, there's an old saying, though, um, Thomas, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And when you look at where we've been and where we've come to, have things really changed? I mean, let's talk about the current administration in Washington.
1: Well, I think things have changed, and let me just give you, I mean, how I, how I keep score, okay? Uh, you know, in terms of what's happened in the last 50 years. African Americans have achieved success and prominence <clears throat> at the highest levels of every occupation and profession in business, law, medicine, the arts, academia, entertainment, athletics, and government, You know, we've had an African American that's been elected the President of the United States. Uh, Even with regards to, uh, you know, the things such as the violence against unarmed African Americans, those things which have sparked the Black Lives Matters protests, the truth is that for every time incidents like that occur today, the frequency was 50 times greater 50 years ago and proportionately 100 times greater a 100 years ago, so we should acknowledge and celebrate the truth that even though no such incidents should happen, in fact, they are far fewer, far less frequent than they used to be. You know, we should acknowledge and celebrate the truth that millions and millions and millions of African-Americans have been lifted out of poverty and are in the middle class and um, in, in, in many cases, even higher positions. So and, and, and finally, we should celebrate that racial discrimination, you know, that kind of what I described as the Jim Crow laws uh, and there were other forms of discrimination against African Americans that were actually written into the law, all of that has gone away you know that what you call de jure discrimination against african americans is no longer enshrined in american law and the, the judicial system so so i think you know that we ought to give the country credit for 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 those for those achievements and you know the fact that a president trump is president i don't consider president trump uh to be a racist uh you know um He's not regarded as a friend uh, of the African American uh, community, but um, um, I don't think that that's the same. Having somebody who might not be your friend is not the same as having a president who is actively uh, seeking to impose discrimination. You know, go back. I mean, Uh, President Woodrow Wilson, as an example, you know, uh, celebrated as a leading figure back in the early 1900s, led the United States into the League of Nations. He actually tried to remove African Americans from being able to have jobs in the federal civil service, in the federal bureaucracy. Uh, So, you know, there have been presidents that have been actively hostile towards the black community. I don't put I don't put President Trump in that category. So, again, I, I see the glass as more half full rather than half empty.
0: And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Thomas W. Jones, his new book, From Willard Straight to Wall Street, a memoir. It's a story of someone who started as a campus revolutionary and became a leading African-American on Wall Street. My name's Peter Solomon. How, though, did you make that journey, though, to Wall Street? I can imagine a job interview where they, you know, figured out about Cornell and got a little nervous.
1: Well, you're right there, Peter. And, um, you know, I, I thought, you know, when I, when I saw America taking this kind of metaphorical turn towards inclusion, I said, well, you know, I think the toughest fight is going to be in the business world because that's where the money is. And uh, so I want I want to try, uh, I want to take on the toughest fight. But I figured I had just about, you know, next to no chance, as close to zero chance as you could possibly have because I was the black radical from Cornell. But uh, I didn't take a defeatist attitude. You know, what I said to myself was, You know, your odds of success are really low. Um, So you can't let your self-esteem be determined by, uh, you know, are you promoted on on this job? You have to let your your self-esteem be be, be focused on what you can control. And I said to myself, the only things you can control are your attitude, your demeanor, and your work effort, you know. So, so, you know, I approached every day, you know, a positive attitude, a really positive demeanor towards everybody I, I interacted with and giving 100% effort to do the best I could at whatever my assignments were every day and you know i just stayed in this cocoon this mental cocoon of you want to feel good every day about how you conducted yourself the attitude you had and the work effort you put in that's all that you can control so that's all that you you can focus on and you know if you get fired at least you walk away knowing that you did everything that you could do you gave it your best shot And you know what I discovered, Peter? Uh, As I focused in, I was really giving 100% effort. And what I discovered is that there's a big difference between 100% effort and 95%. I mean, most of us come along, we focus at a 90 or 95% level of effort, in, in part because that's the way we're socialized in school. You know, 90, 95 is an A, and that an A is the best you can do, isn't it? So people are satisfied with that. But there's actually a big difference between 95 and 100. It doesn't show up on any given exam. I mean, who cares who got a 95 or who got 100? It doesn't show up on any given work assignment. But the difference, if you're actually working at 100% effort, to try to achieve excellence, to achieve your best, and you sustain that day after day and week after week and month after month, it's a difference. There's a difference between 195, and 95. And people began to notice me. You know, I began to, I didn't understand it when I first went into the business world, but the most successful senior executives are kind of like what I would call sports coaches. You know, one of the reasons they get to the top is because they build good teams of talented people uh, working in the areas that these executives manage. And so they're like sports coaches kind of always on the outlook, you know, looking out for some talent. Who can I bring on to my team? And people began to notice me, you know? Because of my attitude and my demeanor and my work effort And senior executives began to put me on their team. And you know, this is a reciprocal relationship. They became my mentor. A mentor relationship is reciprocal. You know, they wanted me on their team because I produced good work. You know, clients were pleased with my work. I did a good job. In turn, you know, they gave me raises and promotions And let's be truthful, protection, not everybody. I mean, there would have been people who would have fired the black radical from Cornell. And so I was able to climb the ladder. Uh, And so even that to me, even that is uh, a story that America should be proud of that because of personal grit and perseverance you know, this guy who basically had next to no chance at all was able to overcome the, those, that, that adversity and climb high in corporate America. And, and I think that that's a quintessential um, American story and something that we should be proud of.
0: Absolutely. But how did you maintain that positive attitude when there were those people who wanted to see you fail? Well,
1: because, you know, I'm, I'm a spiritual person, Peter, and so I try to see the good in every situation. Um, you know, I don't, I don't expect the world to be perfect. Uh, you know, um, one of the lessons, um, you know, my father was a minister, and I've had a pretty deep spiritual connection all my life, and, uh, you know, I, I read the Bible. Cover to cover, uh, in uh, in my twenties, and one of the stories that most struck me in the Bible, uh, the story of Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, that on Palm Sunday, uh, people are you know strewing these palms on the road as Jesus rides the donkey and the people are cheering and shouting, Hosanna to the highest. And, you know, one week later, those same people are screaming, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas. So I've got that understanding, you know, that the same people who at one moment are grateful, and loving and caring, you know that same community can be hateful and spiteful uh, one week later. So I don't expect human perfection, um, but because of my spiritual background, I I try not to hate when it's when I see those negative dimensions of human nature. You know, I try to celebrate and embrace the positive and not hate the negative. I defend myself and protect myself against the negative, but I try not to get mired in hatred and retribution. So that mentality I knew there were people that disliked me and people that wanted you know if given their druthers, they would have thrown me out of the company, not just because of me personally but because they didn't like black people there, and certainly didn't want somebody like me who seemed to be rising and succeeding, so I understood that uh but i didn't let that i didn't let that control me I didn't let my energy be consumed. By anger and hatred, even as I was aware of its existence,
0: if you knew then what you know now, what is it you'd know?
1: well i would I would understand uh, that uh, America has the capacity uh, to achieve so much more. Uh, than we do today if we would uh, just take the next step of making sure that opportunity that education and opportunity was actually available to all Americans in the way that uh, we would like to think it is uh, but does not actually exist now you know let me let me just be a little bit clearer about what I mean there. I know today that people who have good education and good personal character and good work discipline can succeed in every field, and every occupation in this country. I also know today that while our school systems are ostensibly integrated and open, in fact, the level of resources that are available uh, vary dramatically across our school systems, usually determined by, by a combination of economic class and race. So, you know, the most successful people cluster together into typically suburban, um, communities where local property taxes pay for the school system, and those property taxes in relatively wealthy communities are able to hire the best teacher, best teachers, and bring resources uh, to the curriculum uh, in ways that just aren't available um, um, in the inner city communities. I mean, w- when I was growing up. Uh, and um, for a number of years, I was in the New York City public school system, which in the late 50s and early 60s was, was considered to be one of the best public education systems in the country. Middle class families came to New York City because of the quality of public education. And at that time, there were things like, uh, like art and orchestra, music, Um, both physical art and performing arts, as well as orchestra, music, as well as sports. Those things were part of the curriculum because children find themselves in, in, in different pursuits, in different venues. You know, that spark of talent and inspiration is found in different ways. It isn't always found in the classroom, in the academic pursuit, by some children. But I understand that a child learning that they can be successful if they, that they have special unique talent and they can be successful by having personal discipline and applying themselves to building that talent. You know, that success uh, is a lifetime um, learning that will carry that child all the way through their life if they can experience that success, whether it be in drama, whether it be in the orchestra, whether it be in sports, or whether it be in the classroom. But today, you know, in many urban school districts, those school districts which serve most black children, you don't find much in the way of of performing arts or orchestra classes or, you know, the visual arts classes, the painting and so on and so forth. And that's because of a lack of resources. And so, uh, you know, I I would, but the, those things are very prevalent in the richer, uh, typically suburban communities because, you know, folks know that that's the way some children are going to find themselves. So, uh my message to America would be double down on investment in public education. uh you know double down on the belief that these kids, even though they come from less wealthy families, uh double down on the belief that investing in these kids uh, is the way to a better future both for those children as they grow into an adulthood and then in their ability to make positive contributions to this country. My own life story tells me that that's possible. Um, the life story that I've seen, uh, it this is the path that's been trod by millions of African Americans historically and in our own generation to lift themselves out of poverty and to, to achieve success. So. I know that that works, and I would tell America to double down on investing and giving these children an opportunity.
0: And the story of Thomas Jones, as told in from Willard Strait to Wall Street, a memoir, proves that doubling down works. Thank you, Thomas Jones.
1: Thank you, Peter. I enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. you.
0: And it's been my pleasure, and it's conversation here on 94WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. More good talk in just a bit. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. Now I've got one for parents, young parents in particular, as I'm pleased to welcome here Dr. Jacqueline Jones. She's got a book, Medical Parenting, How to Navigate Health, Wellness, and the Medical System with Your Child. Good morning, Dr. Jones.
2: Good morning, Peter.
0: Why is it so, I want to say why is it so hard, but do you think it is?
2: It is so hard. It's a much more complicated world that parents are dealing with now than I dealt with or you dealt with in raising your kids years ago. Um, there's so much information available available to parents out there now, and I think it's overwhelming.
0: When you say so much information, are you talking about books and what my
2: wife refers to as Dr. Google? <laughs> I think even more overwhelming is the internet. No, and exactly what your wife is saying, Doctor Google. You know, you type in a uh, headache, and the first thing that comes on, up on Google is, uh, you know, brain tumor. And I, I think the amount of information that that parents and and any patient can get on the internet, and the problem is it's unfiltered information. There's just so much of it. It's hard to figure out what's important. What do I deal with? How do I deal with this?
0: When I was growing up, my mother had a doctor for us, and I think it was sort of like having Dr. Welby. The doctor said, do something, and my mother did it. And that's very different than today, isn't
2: it? Absolutely. And again, it goes back to that information and in some ways choices and access. I mean, when we were growing up, there was one or two pediatricians in the town I live in, New York City, I know Peter that you're in Solomon. You're in um, Philadelphia, and there are a multitude of doctors that you can choose from. So I think that you know people shop around, and and uh, they get so much information. Again, I think it is just so overwhelming.
0: Are there particular issues that we need to think about when we think about keeping our children healthy?
2: I think the first thing is developing that relationship, as you just talked about, Peter, with your pediatrician. You know, I think that's so, so important. And in my first chapter of medical parenting, I talk a little bit about choosing the right pediatrician, and it's such an individual choice. What works for your mother-in-law or your best friend may not be the right choice for you.
0: So you're really talking about... Interviewing a medical professional like you might interview someone applying for a job with you
2: absolutely and I think it's 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 very very important to take that time to find the right pediatrician because it really if it's the right relationship it can last for twenty one to twenty four years uh, so you know taking the time early on in uh, in in your pregnancy to research and then as you get closer to the date of delivery to take time to meet with and to interview prospective pediatricians and practices. If you're a first-time mom, if you're the type of person who really wants to have um, a lot of support during as you raise your children, then maybe you want a smaller practice. If this is your third kid, you got this, you don't need that type of support, You don't need to see the same pediatrician on every visit. Maybe a larger group practice might be right for you. So really taking the time and researching and finding that right person that really, really fits for you. One of the things that that I always uh, tell parents when they ask me about, you know, choosing a pediatrician, you know, we usually don't get married after the first date. So if you find that, you know, that person doesn't really fit with you, it's okay to change. It's okay to look around. It's okay to find someone who might be better suited for you.
0: Some parents hesitate to ask, though, the doctor too many questions, because the doctor will say, if you don't trust me, find another doctor.
2: You know what, if you, if you have a pediatrician who says something like that, do find another doctor, because that's not what you want. You know, any doctor, any good doctor, should be willing to take the time and answer your questions. Now, in this day of increasing um, strain on doctors and the amount of patients that they have to see, may not be able to spend all your time with your pediatrician answering, you know, every single little question, but any good practice is gonna have You know, support personnel, whether it be nurse practitioners or or, um, medical assistants who can take the time to spend with you. So really seeing how that practice works and that your questions are adequately answered. That's what you want.
0: A big question for a lot of parents is to vaccinate or not to vaccinate. What do you say about that?
2: That's really a tough question. And again, it goes back to what? works for you. And that's where you want to find a pediatrician that's really going to be sensitive that to your values and what's important to you. And again, in this age where, you know, in Philadelphia and New, New York, you know, there are just a multitude of choices. So taking that time, really researching, and finding someone that fits with your core values.
0: But if you do vaccinate you're helping to ensure the health not only of your child, but the child children around them. And if you don't vaccinate, aren't you really helping to spread disease?
2: It's a big controversy now. And, and I think that, you know, the states have really legislated now that the vast majority of children do need to be vaccinated. So that I think the choices for parents who don't want to vaccinate their children, as far as, you know, um, having them, you know, join school are becoming less and less and less. So, you know, that's, again, a very, very personal choice. And if you do choose to go the route of not vaccinating, it, it comes to really not letting your children interact with others, which is a very hard choice.
0: Then there's the question of what do you feed the child? Do you breastfeed? <clears throat> do you buy formula? When's it time to put milk in there?
2: You know, uh, most of the studies have shown that breastfeeding is the best nutrition for any newborn child. But there's reasons why some moms can't breastfeed. So, again, working with your pediatrician and finding the best nutrition for your child. But the most important thing is not making that decision alone. To relying upon the medical professional to deciding what's best for your child. If you're really committed to breastfeeding, and your child isn't gaining weight and getting sick, then that's not a good choice for you. So working with your pediatrician and really finding a good choice for your child. And again, you know, I, I, one of the things that, that is really important as children grow is not to get them hooked on what I call the beige diet. And the beige diet is chicken nuggets, milk, french fries, white bread, Cheerios, so many cultures in our world expose children early on to a vast array of different types of textures and tastes, sour and spicy. It's really important to expand your child's palate early on so they don't end up with that you know, 11-year-old who's never had a green vegetable in their mouth.
0: Well, and I think you're right about that in that when my children were growing up, I was not a big vegetable eater. and. Children didn't see me eat vegetables, so they don't eat a whole lot of vegetables either. Children do what they see their parents do.
2: Or don't do. Absolutely. And again, so many of us and now work really hard and a lot of children are raised by nannies or in daycare and again they might not may not be as adventurous. And exposing children to those varied diets as we would like to be. So, making sure that you know, if you if you do have a nanny or bring your ch- bring your child to childcare, that you do you know ask them to make sure that your child is exposed to vegetables and and varied type of textures early on.
0: You raise an important question when you say the word nanny or childcare. So many children now have live in families where both parents work. Both out of economic necessity as well as searching for self-fulfillment, but at the same time, especially mothers are told you can work, but you got to take care of your family too. And if you're not there for the child, something's wrong with you.
2: No, so Peter, it's such an important question that you raise. You know, there's so many issues with um, gender equality, and I think you know, as a black woman, I have. Um, Worked really hard in my past 30 years of being a physician to, to get where I am today, but it did take some sacrifices. And I think that as women and as parents, we do have to make sacrifices. And culturally, it still is, no matter what we say, a lot of the burden falls on moms um, to be the primary um, caregiver for our children. So I think that it's something that we need to continue to work on as um, women, as men, and in our culture to make sure that we do our best to share that responsibilities. And again, as a mom, not taking on 100% of the responsibility yourself, but making sure you get help from those around you, whether it be your spouse, your significant other, your family, or whether it be caregivers in your life. But it, it's a tough issue that you raise Peter, and it's something we continue to grapple with.
0: Well, but that presumes a two-parent family, and so many children anymore are only being raised by one parent, and you do the best you can, and um, sometimes you're successful and sometimes you're not.
2: It's difficult. It really is difficult, Peter. In my book, Medical Parenting, one of my last chapters talks about taking care of yourself, and I think that's a really important thing, as we raise our children. When you get on a the plane, they say, put on your oxygen mask first in an emergency before you put your loved ones on. And I think that's really important. I think what we need to do is make sure that we take care of ourselves, that we're as healthy as we can be, both physically and mentally, because as you said, children mirror what we do. So if we're stressed and anxious and, and not healthy and not exercising, not eating well, those are things that our children see. So it's really, really important to make sure that we take care of ourselves.
0: Children learn what they live, and that's really true.
2: Um, Really, really true.
0: An emerging concern for a lot of parents when you turn on the news is their children's mental health. More and more, you read about children doing stuff that is not healthy for themselves or other people, whether it's drugs, alcohol, or picking up guns and getting into violence. Do you have any thoughts on that issue?
2: Oh my goodness, Peter, such a big epidemic this day. In my book, Medical Parenting, I talk about the rise of uh, suicide in our adolescent population. It's a really scary statistic that the rate of suicide adolescents, especially in uh, children as they go off to college, it's really skyrocketing. And the incidence of children accessing mental health facilities on campus is, uh, is seven times higher now than it was ten years ago. This really is an epidemic in our children. And it's something we, as parents, we really need to look at seriously. The amount of stress, both external from us, from school, as well as internal, from their cells to achieve what we've achieved is just almost too much for these children. So helping them to achieve that healthy balance early on. And one of the things I advocate for parents and for children is to start that, that practice of mindfulness early on. If you take five minutes with a two-year-old, with a three-year-old, just to sit there maybe right after you read that bedtime story to just close your eyes and clear your mind. If you can do that for five minutes and work up as they get older, they have established a practice of how to deal with those thoughts of anxiety and overwhelming pressure that comes as they get older. Just spending that time with them to just clear your mind and relax. Is such a wonderful practice.
0: So many parents, though, have a child who acts out in a negative way, and their reaction is, I had no idea, no clue, no warning. Do you think that's true? Do parents have a
2: warning and they just don't see it? I think that parents do have a warning and we just don't see it. And I think that's really something that it's important as a parent to do, to listen, to be there. And I've tried with my children as they've gotten older to have that cell-free zone. And that applies to everyone in the family. I've tried as my children got older to be at home for dinner, and they needed to be at home for dinner if possible. Not going to happen every single night, but at least three or four nights a week. And at dinner, there's no cell phones. Put those phones on airplane mode. We're not taking calls. We're not surfing the internet. We're not texting. We're going to try and be there with each other now as your kids get older that gets harder and harder find ways to connect with them find a movie to talk about we used to play hangman anything that allows you to interact with their, your child and spend time to just talk about what's important to them and the most important thing is to listen you now try not to ask those one-word phrases like how was your day because you know with boys teenage boys dance is going to be just fine and where did that conversation You've go met to? my sons. <laughs> yeah, you've met mine. <laughs> so asking questions that are gonna require them to answer. What great T V show did you watch today? What did you like about it? You know, um, who's your favorite character in the movies now? You know, something that just allows them to interact in a more than yes or no question. And something that's not threatening now. How did like how did that test go? So listening and maybe just closing your mouth till they say something.
0: Is it different raising little girls than little boys?
2: You know, Peter, I never had little girls. I only had two boys. But I see with my friends and my patients, and I think, you know, girls seem to be so much more verbal and open. And with my friends, you know, they'll text their moms, you know, ten or twenty times a day. And boys, it's like seems to be like it's pulling teeth to get information out of them. And I think that's just the way that they're raised. So looking at your child and knowing the type of child they are, if they're the type of child who really needs that connection with you, you gotta do that. One of the things that I instituted when my boys went off to college is they had to call me once a week. And that had to either be a Skype call or a FaceTime call, or if that wasn't possible, telephone call. And that call had to occur once a week at the same time. And it wasn't so much that I was checking in on them. I just wanted to make sure that we had that connection. Even if it was a five or ten minute call, again, it goes back to hearing the voice. And you know your child. You want to make sure that they're okay. And if they're not okay, you call them the next day. If they're not okay, then maybe you should get in that car and drive up there or get on that plane and see them face-to-face and make sure that they are okay. And if they're not, then you need to make sure that you've got support personnel in there that that they can get healthy. It's all about connection and being there for them. The issues really do
0: vary from raising little kids to raising teenage kids to raising adult kids, doesn't it?
2: Because you never stop worrying. Oh, my goodness. Isn't it so true? That all adage, little kids, little problems, big kids, big problems. And I have these mothers of two-year-olds coming in and, and talking about the, the, the difficult that they're having with their two-year-old. And I think just you wait to that special torture that's reserved to parents of 15 and 16-year-olds when they walk out the door with the car keys.
0: <laughs> or how about when they say, I hate you? <laughs>
2: absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. How do you want people to use
0: the book, Dr. Jones?
2: You know, I hope that people use my book as a place they can go to for a central source of information. You know, I've tried to give parents information from when your child is born to when they're 24 years old. And i tried to hit on all the things that I've encountered as a mom and as a medical professional Guiding parents through this this wonderful and sometimes scary process of raising children. So please try my book Medical Parenting and I hope that it works as a resource and a guide for you as you raise your children. The biggest mistake parents make? Not listening, not being there, assuming that your children don't want you there. And that's especially hard with teenagers when they say things like I hate you. I don't want you around. Yes, they want you around. So taking the time and being there and listening. So important.
0: Good advice from Dr. Jacqueline Jones, author of the new book, Medical Parenting, something we should all consider. Thank you, Dr. Jones.
2: Thank you so much, Peter, for having me on your show this morning.
0: It's my pleasure. And it's been another edition of Conversation here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. It is cold out there. It's going to rain. It's probably going to sleet. It may even snow. So if you're going out and about today, getting started on your holiday shopping, dress warm, take a good raincoat, maybe an umbrella, and take 94 WIP with you. It'll warm you up in between those steps. Um, stay tuned for WIP Sunday. If you can't, nothing left to say, but see you soon. Good morning, and the conversation continues here on 94 WIP as we ease on into WIP Sunday. And it's going to be a cold, wintry WIP Sunday. So dress warm if you're going out and about and do what you need to do to get ready for the holiday season because it's going to get, be, get, get interesting. And when we come back in just a bit, Robert Hard- Hardaway, Robert is the author of a new book on saving the electoral college. Why it's important to maintain our democracy by having this, what some people think is an outdated antiquated system of electing presidents. Well, Mr. Hardaway says something very different. All this and more when we come back here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. More in just a bit. And we're back. It's WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. And before we get started with this morning's interview, I want to take note of a birthday. That birthday, the divine Miss Midler, Bette Midler, 74 today. Happy birthday, Bette. You have brought a lot of happiness to a lot of people. And now let me welcome Robert Hardaway. He's got a lot to say about why the Electoral College is important as we elect a president. 2020 is around the corner, and with 2020 comes another election for president. Good morning, Robert Hardaway.
3: Good morning, uh, Peter.
0: Okay, Robert, why is the Electoral College important?
3: Well, for one thing, let's start off with the fact that there wouldn't be a United States of America without it. Um, back at the time of the, uh, the, of the Constitutional Convention, uh, the country was really breaking apart. Uh, New York and Pennsylvania were uh, forming their own amalgamation with their own tariffs. The small states were, were, were forming their own country. Um, and uh, the only thing that brought them together, uh, interestingly enough. Was the Electoral College, uh, because it was the result of the Grand Compromise, without which, without with without which, uh, we would probably be a six or seven countries in North America rather than just the United States and Canada, uh, much like um, South America, which which has a number of different little countries.
0: You think if the Compromise hadn't happened, there'd be six or seven United States?
3: Yes. Uh, but- at least six or seven, possibly possibly eight or nine. There was not much um, enthusiasm then for, for forming one country um, because there was just too much disagreement on how um, the legislature of that country uh, would be created, or would be structured. Um, the large states said, well, let's just have one person, one vote. And the small states said, no, uh, under the Articles of Confederation, we're entitled to equal suffrage um, in the legislature, and uh, they saved that particular contentious point until the final hours, really, the final days, at least, of the constitutional convention. And there was very little hope. Even um, George Washington said, "We're not. Nothing's going to come of this." Um, but then, at the really at the last hour, this compromise was reached, in which which the compromise, as we all know now, is that we'll do both. We'll have, uh, we'll split the legislature into two houses, uh, one, uh, one, one of which will be based on one person, one vote uh, by population. And one, every state will have equal equal weight. And the, the, the founding fathers were so concerned that in the future, and they were very prescient in this in this sense, um, would, would try to fiddle with that, would try to take away Uh, that equal suffrage in the Senate. And so they passed, and the last sentence of Article 5 says that's the one provision in the Constitution that cannot be amended by constitutional amendment. You cannot change that equal suffrage of each state in the Senate uh, unless every state agrees. And of course, as every schoolboy knows, schoolgirl, the Electoral College is based on equal suffrage in the Senate. The weight that each state is is guaranteed under the Constitution is based on their representation in the Senate. That gives you two electoral votes right there. And then at least one in the, in the House of Representatives. So you can't really, quote, abolish the Electoral College unless you also abolish the Senate and unless every state agrees. And so every 10 or 20 years, people... There's this political banter, oh, let's abolish the Electoral College. Um, but as John F. Kennedy uh, pointed out to his his associates in the Senate, his fellow senators, uh, you can't do that in every, unless every state agrees because the Electoral College, the weight that every state is guaranteed under the Constitution is based on that equal suffrage in the Senate, which cannot be changed unless every state agrees. So. But every 10 or 20 years, um, this, this issue uh, comes up again. It was discussed at the Constitutional Convention. It was, it was uh, roundly rejected, but it keeps coming up. And every time that uh, someone like John F. Kennedy has to point out that every state would have to agree to this, um, there are those who try to figure, isn't there a way around this? The latest scheme, if you want to call it, um, to get around uh, this, this requirement of unanimity to change the electoral college in the U.S. Senate um, is called the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. It's a, it's a scheme whereby uh, as few as eleven states would, would 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 come together, form a cabal, if you will, and agree to cast their votes according to so-called the so-called popular vote. The problem with that scheme is there is no such thing as the popular vote. It's based on an illusion um, that's, that's fostered by the media, um, which is that when you go into the voting booth and you vote, um, you're voting for Clinton or Trump or whoever. No, you're not. You're voting for a slate of electors, Joe blows, John Jane does who say that if you elect them, then they will promise to vote for uh, the presidential candidate. But the, the, the problem is that sometimes they don't do that. And the two in the 2016 election. Um, one of the, uh, several electors in Colorado said we don't want to vote for Hillary Clinton we know we were elected to do that our slate of electors was 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 elected but now we don't want to vote for Hillary Clinton so now when you ask the MPBIC people how are you going to count the popular votes for electors that don't want to or do not follow through with their pledge and they say well Gee, um, we'll just count, we'll just throw away those votes. We'll disenfranchise. In the case of Colorado, 148,000 voters, one ninth, uh, the, uh, one ninth of the elector slate. Um, also, if you ask them how do you count uh, so-called, your so-called popular votes for unpledged electors, such as the Alabama electors in the 1960 uh, election, and they say we would just ignore them. So this is their idea, uh, this is the scheme's idea of getting around the constitutional guarantees in Article Two and Article Five of the Constitution.
0: But there are those people who would argue Hillary Clinton won the popular vote because there's a popular vote and there's the Electoral College vote.
3: But well, that's that's the illusion. There is no popular vote. No one voted for Hillary Clinton. No one. Um, no one voted for Trump. They voted for electors. Who said they would vote for these candidates, and they—not all of them—did. So there's no popular vote. This is an illusion that's fostered by the media. If you watch TV on election night, you see at the bottom of the screen the so-called popular vote. It's not a popular vote for candidates. It's a popular vote for electors, and sometimes they don't vote for the person that they promised to vote for, or they are unpledged electors. And there's simply no way to count those as, quote, popular votes for candidates.
0: Well, the electors then who don't vote the way they should vote, according to the election, shouldn't there be some re- some pr- way to f- remediate that to make some it Some states fair?
3: have done that. Uh, there's about 29 states that have said they have to. They have to vote for the candidate they promised to vote for. In um, Colorado, where I am a professor at the University of Denver uh, Law School, um, uh, they have a law that says that if you don't vote for that person, um, that there are consequences, um, and that they can be replaced. But um, um, a number of states, uh, over twenty, about I think about twenty-two, um, do not have such provisions. The electors can vote for whoever they want to. So there's no way to calculate a popular vote. It's interesting. In 1960, the um, the New York Times and the Congressional Quarterly uh, tried to count, cal- tried to create a sort of uh, uh, a figure for the so-called popular vote, um, and they came up with a figure that said that we uh, that Nixon won the so-called popular vote. Um, And they did that by counting all the votes for unpledged electors in Alabama as votes for uh, Nixon. Um, Later, some states said, well, um, we, we wouldn't count the popular votes that way because we realize there are no such things as popular votes. So uh, this, this scheme, uh, which is unconstitutional for a number of other reasons that you'd have to read the book, and not least the compact clause of the Constitution, um, there's really no way to count popular votes. There's no such thing. That's why the Interstate Commerce, the, the National Popular Vote Interstate Commerce Act is, is, is actually nonsensical.
0: If it's nonsensical, where'd it come from?
3: Well, there's some um, some rich uh, interests, I won't name their names, they're in California, some in Florida, but mainly in California. Um, and when people become millionaires, some of them will spend it on a new yacht, some of them will spend it on a nice new airplane. Um, these people uh, have said, we want to... Ch- do an in run around the U.S. Constitution. We don't like the fact that the, that the founding fathers um, put this provision in the Constitution that says we can't change the Electoral College of the U.S. Senate unless every state agrees. Um, and uh, so that's how they, they come up with this. And they paid pay these lobbyists enormous sums of money to go in sort of under the radar in states. In 2007, they tried this in, Calo- in Colorado for the first time. And when I said to the to the to the committee, the legislative committee in the Colorado legislature, give me 15 minutes and I'll explain to you why this this scheme cannot is not viable, they gave me my 15 minutes, which basically I tried to cover what I covered in my book, and uh, they they changed their vote from 10 to one in favor to 10 to one against. The only one that continued to vote for it was the sponsor of the bill. Um, so once this the word is out, they they generally uh, back away. Unfortunately, a few months ago, they tried it again, but there were like 400 people down there um, at the legislature who were only given a minute each, uh, and I sat, had to sit through the first hundred or so, and their basic argument was, oh, we should adopt this. It sounds so great, national popular vote. We should uh, ad- adopt that um, because we don't like the results of the election. Um, and so I didn't get a chance to point out what John F. Kennedy pointed out in uh, in 1956, when he was in the Senate, um, that if you use the, the national popular vote system, even if you could do it, I mean, maybe if you could get every state to agree to to, to adopt a national popular vote, um, you wouldn't get a majority candidate. Uh, this is what happened um, in France in 2017. They adopted the Russian system. This is the Russian system that's being proposed by the national popular vote interstate compact people. Um, And of course, they didn't have the channeling effects of the Electoral College, Um, so the election was held in which uh, Le Pen, an extreme right winger, got 23 percent, Macron got 21 percent. The majority parties, or the major parties, got 19 points each. Now this led to a theoretical uh, runoff in which it was between Le Pen and Macron, with the result that Macron, who was really only supported by 21 percent of the people, got elected. And there were so many outraged um, voters in France that 600,000 of them cast their votes as blank ballots to register their protest against such an undemocratic system whereby someone gets elected who's opposed by two-thirds of the people. Um, and, but this is the Russian system. It's it's This is the way it generally works um, in Russia as well. Um, It's interesting that if we had had the Russian system, the so-called popular vote system in 1993, the polls show that in May of 1993, Perot would have gotten 33 percent, Bush 28 percent, Clinton 24 percent. And then if we had had this Russian system kind of uh, runoff, um, the the Democratic Party wouldn't have even been on the ballot. They would have been cast into the dustbins (laughs) of history, I guess. And that would have been the demise, basically, of our two-party system. Um, These NPVIC people claim that, oh, this wouldn't happen in the United States because um, we have two major parties that are very solid. Well, the reason that we have two major parties uh, is because we have an electoral college system. Um, That's that's why we retain the two-party system. We don't split our votes with uh, 8% for this party, 9% for that party. That's the Russian system. And the founding fathers were intelligent enough to realize uh, that that would never work. Um, As John F. Kennedy pointed out, when he he pointed all this out to to his fellow senators, basically Republicans who were trying to undermine the the federalist foundations of our country by quote, abolishing the Electoral College, uh, he pointed out to them, this is a quote from his great speech. He he went in like Mr. Smith goes to Washington and uh, he persuaded them to drop this whole crazy idea. He said, the facts of the matter are that a system of direct election, that is the Russian system, will greatly increase the likelihood of minority presidents. It would break down the federal system under which most states entered the Union, which provides a system of checks and balances to ensure that no area or group shall obtain too much power. And I would highlight the words area or group. The Founding Fathers realized that the country of the geographic dimensions of the United States. Uh, could not survive if any narrow region of the country uh, were allowed to dictate to the rest of the country that support for a president would have to be broad as well as as deep. Um, to take an illustration let's say in the 1950s we had the Russian system and you had, let's say you had 90 percent in one region, let's say in the south, for a segregationist Canada, Mr. Wallace or whatever. Um, but to th- But the rest of the country but three-quarters of the rest of the country, oppose that candidate. Um, if, the, if the South could eke out a total national popular vote majority for their candidate, that candidate would be elected even if it was opposed by three-quarters of, uh, of the rest of the country. And a country simply cannot be sustained uh, with that system. That's why you see countries like Russia are breaking apart, really. So we're very fortunate to have this system. We're very fortunate. Our founding fathers—they um, anticipated this whole NPBIC thing. It comes up every ten or twenty years. Uh, in 1960, it was Republicans who said this is a terrible system. It's archaic. How could it? it's a system that elected John F. Kennedy, even though John F. Kennedy didn't win the so-called popular vote. Um uh, so this comes up every ten or twenty years, but I put it into the category of political banter. I do not see every state agreeing to give up their equal suffrage in the Senate upon which the weight of each state is based in the in the presidential election. I just don't see it, it happening. And if it did happen, that's the rest of my book, is why would it be such a terrible idea? Well, of course, first of all it would result in the election of, of minority presidents. It would be a catastrophe for minority groups. Uh, As Vernon Jordan, who is head of the National Urban League said said when they were trying to do, when Republicans were trying to do away with the Electoral College in Congress, he said, and I quote, take away the Electoral College and the importance of being black melts away. Blacks, instead of being crucial to victory in major states, simply become 10 percent of the electorate with reduced impact. And Clarence Mitchell of the NAACP also recognized the devastating consequence to minorities if the Russian system were imposed on the United States by some uh, but
0: Take a breath, Robert would... Hardaway. I've got to run some commercials here, but we'll be right back, so don't go away. And you're okay, listening to you. WIP Sunday more in just a bit. And we're back here on WIP Sunday with Robert Hardaway, professor of law at, in Colorado, author of the new book, Saving the Electoral College. My name's Peter Solomon. Let's talk more about why it would be a bad idea, Robert. Um, well,
3: let's just take a few off the top. Um, my whole book is really just a compilation of of, of the arguments that John F.K. Uh, made in the Senate, and he raised all these as well. But let me just name a few. First of all, recounts. You couldn't have a recount under a popular vote system, at least not under the MPBIC. Some people may remember back in 2000, when the for the first time in history there was a very close vote in the electoral college Uh, it was by one vote actually in the electoral college and um, so there had to be recounts in florida because that would have changed the outcome of the election and some people may remember the the trauma that that the country went through and just a recount in one state with all the appeals and so forth and the civil commotion. Can you imagine that trauma being multiplied by a factor of 50? If you had to have recounts in all 50 states, um, if we had had the Russian system in place in 1960, it's been estimated that it would have taken several years to get through all those uh, recounts. It's just simply impossible to have recounts if you could even have one. And you really couldn't have one because each state has its own threshold for recounts. Uh, if a state had a, uh, a sizable margin of votes for electors for, for uh, say, Trump, um, or for Clinton, um, why would they have a recount? Um, the, the, their law state law wouldn't, wouldn't provide for it. So it's not possible to have a, a recount. Um, you know, our, our Electoral College is, is similar in many ways to the to the parliaments and all the great parliamentary democracies of the world such as the UK. Um, the one difference is that the Electoral College has only one duty to elect the president. Whereas in parliamentary democracies, you have one body, the parliament, that performs two functions. It passes legislation and it elects the president. And the founding fathers, in their perspicacity, realized they, that we want a system of checks and balances. We don't want a president to be beholden um, or answerable to a legislature because we want a strict separation of powers. But but, but the same system uh, can happen, uh, whereas, okay, in the United States, of course, under the Constitution, they separated that into two sort of parliaments, if you want to call it that. One we call the Congress, the other one we call the Electoral College. Um, but um, in the parliaments, you can sometimes get a result where the so-called popular vote differs from the elect uh, the the electoral vote. For example, in the UK, you elect members to go to parliament, who in turn, like like our electors, then vote for a uh, national national leader. In 1974, for example, Labour elected more members to parliament, but couldn't and formed the government, um, even though they didn't. Uh, there weren't. Uh, the they didn't win the so-called popular vote. cast were individual members of Parliament who who went to Parliament to cast their votes for their uh, for their leader. So it, it does uh, it does happen. Um, you know, um, people every 10 or 20 years they they say well let's go to the russian system we have one person one vote but when it results in the election of a candidate supported by only 21 percent of the people which is basically what happened in france using the Russian system you get a lot of outrage and a lot of the outrage is based on the fact that this is not democratic at all um and but but under our system, there's still people who will say, as the Republicans said in 1960, that, that this is a terrible system because it elected Kennedy. So there must be something wrong with the system. Today they're saying, well, there must be something wrong with the system because it elected Trump. But there's nothing illegitimate in a in a parliament such as in the UK, which elected which which elected a a party, the Labour Party, who formed the government, even though they didn't get the so-called popular vote. Um, and to, to say that this is not legitimate uh, is sort of like saying in a, to use a football analogy, well, the result of this football game isn't legitimate because our team got the most yardage. We just didn't get the most points. But the good teams uh, play within the structure, within the rules. Uh, in, the 19, in the 2016 election, um, the Republican candidate didn't even go to, to um, California or, or, or New York um, really at, at all, because there was that was not part of a, of a good strategy. Um, the votes the, the would have been much different, I think, if, if there had been campaigning across the country. But if we were to adopt the Russian system, there'd be very little reason for a presidential candidate to campaign and say, Wyoming, um, because the population is so small there. Um, I, I use the analogy of Willie Sutton, who was asked, who's an infamous bank robber, And he was asked, um, why do you rob banks? And he said, that's where the money is. Well, if we have a Russian system, the candidates would campaign in those areas where the votes are. Los Angeles, New York, San Francisco, Chicago, Miami, and so on. And the hinterland would basically be ignored. Um, You know, there's two states, uh, Maine and Nebraska which uh, allocate their electoral votes, which they're permitted to do because Article Two of the Constitution gives complete authority to each state to determine how they're going to uh, have their elections for electors. Maine and Nebraska says we'll do it more proportionally. Well, actually it's the district method. We'll do it proportionally. And uh, that one electoral vote, uh, two electoral votes available, say in Maine, was enough to get uh, trump at least to campaign there because he remembered that in the 2000 election the election was won by one electoral vote but as as i indicated earlier if you were to if all the states were to agree that would be the requirement of course uh every school kid knows that uh, but if every state agreed to abolish the u.s senate and to abolish and and the electoral college upon which uh the weight of each state is based based on equal suffrage in the senate um, you would get a, you would get, um, a, a system uh, which does not elect a majority president.
0: So it's not one party or one candidate that causes the public reaction to make this argument, but rather it's something people see in the system that they don't believe works or does work?
3: Well, generally, usually um, there's been two or three instances in American history. It happens about an average of once or twice a century or so. Um, where the so-called national popular vote, and of course, there, as I indicated, there is no such thing. You vote for electors, some of whom vote for the candidate they, but they promise to vote for, some who don't. Okay, so there's no way to, to translate that into popular votes for a particular candidate. But if you uh, if you had that system, there would be no way to really determine uh, who was the uh, who was the president, and so. Um, the, the population, the, the people of the United States, uh, they haven't, don't remember what they learned, say, in an eighth grade civics class. Um, they will take the position that, well, there we, must be a bad system because it didn't elect the president that we wanted. That's why Republicans were so outraged in 1960. They said there must be something wrong with the Electoral College because it elected Kennedy. Uh, whereas if it had been on a so-called popular vote system, the Russian system, it would have elected Nixon. In fact, it wouldn't have elected probably either of them. It probably would have elected some, uh, some segregationist candidate probably with about 19% of the vote, as it came very close to doing in France in 2017, or at least a right-wing candidate, I should say. Hmm. So that's pretty much uh, as far as uh, – that's why I'm, I'm disturbed when I, when I see people arguing about the Electoral College. Their arguments basically, there must be something wrong with it if it didn't elect my candidate.
0: Is this argument that we're having about Electoral College, no Electoral College ever going to go away?
3: Oh, will the Electoral College ever go away?
0: Or, you know, are we, can we just stop arguing about this stuff and proceed? Or do we have to continue to have this argument? Oh, no, we
3: have to continue because anytime a particular party in the United States, we have two major parties. And uh, once one one party loses... Um, even though they, they, they claim that they won some kind of theoretical popular vote for electors in the national election, um, they're going to be upset and they're going to say it's not legitimate and they're going to say, let's abolish the Electoral College. And they, they don't uh, remember what they learned in seventh grade physics, that you can't abolish the U.S. Senate, upon which uh, the weight of each state is guaranteed in the presidential election unless every state agrees and I just don't see that happening I don't see Wyoming or Rhode Island saying yes let's abolish the US Senate and that's why I think that some of the demagogues today that say abolish the electoral college they they do remember and that's they, they understand that you can't abolish the, um, uh, the US you, you can't abolish the electoral college unless you abolish the Senate upon which the Electoral College is based, part of the grand compromise that brought this uh, nation together into one one country. And so they, they, uh, they argue that, um, well, some of them come right out and say, well, okay, let's just abolish the U.S. Senate because it's not one person, one vote. Wyoming gets two uh, senators and California gets two senators. Others take a more sanguine view and say, well, the Senate's been around a long time. Um, as long as the electoral college is as, as a matter of fact uh, so let's maybe not abolish it but let's do it one person one vote so california would get 58 senators wyoming would be maybe get one um, that's not the way federalism works and uh, we've seen that uh, in countries that don't have uh, the federalism that our country um, was given by our by our constitutional framers
0: and you're listening to I'm um, WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. It's commercial time one more time, Robert Hardaway. So we'll be back in just a bit. Don't go away.
3: Okay, I'll be here.
0: And we're back and into the home stretch of WIP Sunday with my guest, Robert Hardaway, his book, Saving the Electoral College, how he responds to the argument. Let's just get rid of the Electoral College and elect presidents by a popular vote. Does it make sense or not? Not according to Mr. Hardaway. Robert, who should read the book?
3: Well, I think anyone who's interested in, for example, um, The arguments that John F. Kennedy did back in 1956 when he stopped, put the kibosh on all this political banter about abolishing the Electoral College. Basically, a word of confession here, my book is basically a recapitulation of almost all the arguments that John F. Kennedy made to the U.S. Senate and he put a stop to all this i won't say it's complete nonsense because some people really don't remember what was in the constitution and and that what the forefathers said in the last sentence of article 5 is you can't abolish the senate or the electoral college upon which all the weight is guaranteed in presidential elections by the constitution unless every state unless every state agrees um, but nevertheless, there has been so many myths about the, the whole Electoral College process, how it was instituted. Some people um, love, this is one of my favorites, they say, well, there was a compromise with the southern states to bring them in. But that was not the grand compromise that brought the smaller states in. That, the, the smaller states were told, you, uh, if you will join us, um, then, then we will give you equal suffrage in at least one house of the, of, of, of the legislature. Uh, the South had a whole different problem. Um, they had their slaves. And um, they wanted the slaves to be counted for purposes of representation in the House. And, of course, the North quite uh, rightfully said, why should we allow you to count, as part of your population, slaves who don't even have the right to vote? and that 's where the three fifths uh, compromise was um, what we came into play to get the to get the uh, the southern states to join into the union, otherwise they were balking about coming into the union, but it had nothing to do with the grand compromise with the smaller states Rhode Island and the Delaware and so on. Um, which, came, which came into play only because uh, the smaller states said, we're not going to join a union where we're, uh, we're, our states are marginalized in the national legislature. The country was breaking apart uh, at that time. Um, as a matter of fact, advisors to uh, George III said, the country, that place is breaking apart. Um, pretty soon they will be begging to come back into the British Empire. And if we had not come up with that, uh, with that Grand Compromise that brought all the states together, um, I don't, we wouldn't have one nation today. We would have, be very much like South America, calculations show that probably we would have at least six or seven different countries in, uh, in, in North America um so those are a lot of the myths and uh in my book i point all those myths out i don't know where people come up with these and it took the jfk to kind of uh explain to the people of this country why we cannot undermine the federalism that our forefathers guaranteed to us in the constitution they foresaw all this they foresaw all demagogues in the future trying to abolish the senate abolish the electoral college and when he pointed it out um the electoral college was saved now the title of my book, "Saving the Electoral College," is a little bit of a misnomer. I don't think my publishers really understood exactly uh, the arguments of JFK that I have in my in my book, um, because I don't I don't think it's in any under threat. I simply do not believe that small states like Rhode Island or Wyoming are going to abolish the Senate uh, or the Electoral College upon which uh, the Senate uh, the uh, upon which the electoral college is based. I simply don't think it's gonna happen, so I put this into the category of political banter. If you lose an election, you, you sort of go on the rampage and, and complain about it. Um, but I just don't think it's going to to happen. And it, if it takes a John F. Kennedy uh, to explain all these things, fine. Uh, my book sets forth all his arguments and all of them were accepted by the U.S. Senate. They, they said, yeah, we have a federalist system and, and we sh- and we need to stick to it. Uh, you know, this country has basically been spoiled. We've had these um, elections where we go to the voting booth, uh, and uh, the next morning um, uh, we expect uh, there to be a president. Um, and that almost always happens. Um, and we look at other countries, like in France or whatever, or many of the countries around the world, where they have all these disputes and the civil commotion and so forth. And we think that, uh, oh, Aren't we lucky? We must be a better kind of uh, – we must be better than those countries. And in one sense, we are, we're, set, we're because we have an electoral college, which is the glue that created this nation and which continues to hold the nation together.
0: Well, as you were talking, an, an <clears throat> a point came to me. Why are the two linked? Why does having or not having an electoral college link to having or not having a Senate?
3: having the Senate? Why is it linked to the Senate?
0: Yeah, why are they linked like that?
3: Well, because the um, the weight that each state gets in the presidential election process is based on the number of senators they have and the number of representatives in the House. So so for example, a state like Wyoming uh, gets three electoral votes, even though they only have a population, I think of about four 500, uh, half a million people. Um, uh, and the small states said, well, the, the, you know, the big states said, well, that's not one person, one vote. Um, and uh, and uh, the small states said, fine, form your own country. If you want one person, one vote, you, you'll just have a country of uh, the big states. That's fine, form your own country. And so that's where we have the uh, the grand compromise. But the elect, the weight that each state is guaranteed under Article 2, which is is based on equal suffrage of each state in the Senate. So if you, uh, you can't take away that weight. Um, if we had a Russian system, Wyoming would not have um, weight which represents 3 out of 540. There's 540 so, so, uh, electoral votes. And they have uh, 3 out of 540, which is, I don't know, a little less than 1%. But if they're just part of the uh, grand population, um, that weight that they would be given would, would be denied to them even though it's guaranteed in the Constitution. So the weight that each state gets in the Electoral College is based on their equal suffrage in the Senate. And the last sentence of Article 5 says that you cannot take away that equal suffrage of each state in the Senate, equal representation in the Senate, unless every state agrees. And I just don't see that happening. And JFK didn't see it happening. He had to explain it to the, the rampageous uh, Republicans that were trying to get rid of the Electoral College because they thought it favored the, uh, Republic, uh, the Democrats, which it did. In the 1960 election, it did favor them. And that's why they were so outraged in 1960 and why they proceeded in the years thereafter to try to abolish the Electoral College. But thankfully, we had a JFK at the right time and the right place, and whatever you think of him in other areas, a Bay of Pigs or whatever, he understood the Constitution. And he, when he explained it, um, the whole matter was put to rest.
0: Do you teach this stuff in your teaching practice?
3: I have, well, it's not a practice. I, I'm a professor of okay. law. Um, um, I, I usually have to teach, have to, <laughs> I enjoy it, a civil procedure and evidence, but I've also taught courses in election law written a number of books, uh, many, many articles. Um, And I'm always astonished that my students aren't aware of the last sentence of Article 5, which says you can't abolish the Senate unless every state agrees. And the Article 2 guarantees every state weight in the election process, which is based on that equal representation in the Senate, which cannot be abrogated, except unless every state agrees. And uh, I'm always amazed at how few people even are aware of that provision. They can look it up, Google it up, the last sentence of Article 5. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll actually read it to you. It says, no state, this is from the Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution, Without its, no state without its consent shall be deprived of its equal suffrage in the Senate. And then Article 2 guarantees to every state um, a particular weight in the presidential election based on uh, their equal suffrage in the Senate. Um, you know, Madison recognized this too <clears throat> when he said, and I'm quoting, and John F. Kennedy quoted Madison uh, when he made his famous speech in the, in the U.S. Congress and the U.S. Senate, quote, this government is not completely consolidated, nor is it entirely federal. What are, who are the parties to it? The people. Not the people as comprising one great mass, but the people as composing 13 sovereignties. Today, of course, it would be 50 sovereignties. And that's the basis of federalism. A, a country as geographically large and diverse as the United States could not be, have been created without the Electoral College. Nor do I think it, it could uh, continue to exist if we went to the Russian system, which is what's being proposed by the people who don't like the results of the last election. Who are these but Remember, but we have to remember that, 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 that demographics change in 1960. Um, it was the Republicans who were most outraged about the 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 election because Kennedy won the electoral vote but didn't win the so-called popular vote.
0: Who are these people, though? You talked about millionaires, particularly in California. Um, I know you don't. Yes, want, um, I, I know you don't want to name names. But. well I don't
3: think uh, there, there's no secret there's no secret to it there is a millionaire out in in, uh, in, in uh, and he's a very fine fellow by the way I've, I've met him at, at symposiums symposia and uh, he's convinced that one person one vote is the way to go the, the Russian system the one person one vote system um, would be a great system and it was a system that was considered by the founding fathers um, so I'm not saying they're crazy or off the wall. It's just I'm saying that um, that system has not worked in the other countries where it's been tried, such as in France, it does not work. And it would create a minority president because the the beauty of the Electoral College is it channels and creates compromise before the election. Um, In 1936, uh, polls show that the Socialist Party had something like 10 to 12% um, support and, um, but they realized that under the Electoral College, in order to get even one electoral vote, you have to uh, win a plurality of votes in a particular state. So the, the, the socialists realized we're not going to win a plurality in any state. So they compromised with the Democratic Party, uh, compromised on their, on their, on their platform and so on. And then the Democratic Party went on to win the election in 1936. But in, in countries that don't have an Electoral College, um, the compromises have to take place after the election. And so you get these very unstable coalitions, situations like I, th- I think in Italy they had 16 governments in 14 years, very unstable uh, because they can't form a government. This is true even in, uh, in Great Britain um, where they have three, three parties. Um, the liberal party being, being the, the third party, and that sometimes they hold the weight, uh, the margin between a majority and, and forming a government. And so then you have to compromise with these very small parties. In some countries you have to form a, a very unstable coalition with a with very extreme party that holds, that holds the weight of power. Um, we've been spared all that. We've been spoiled. Over the last 200 years, we go to the voting booth and we expect a president the next, the next morning. And, and, the, and that almost always happens, as I said, once or two times in a, in a century or so. It doesn't jive exactly with the so-called theoretical popular vote. Um, but that's what federalism is all about. If people really want one person, one vote, they really should attack the, uh, the US Senate first, because that's where legislation is passed continuously. Um, year after year that affects everyone. Um, The elections of, of a president happens every four years. But if you're really concerned, if people, I tell people, if you're really concerned about this one vote, one person, one vote, then the first step is to abolish the U.S. Senate, which you can do if every state agrees. But for some reason, they want to go after the electoral college, upon which the the elector, upon which the, the they want to abolish the electoral college, which is based on equal suffrage in the Senate.
0: And I want to say thank you to Robert Hardaway, law professor, scholar, author of the new book um, about the electoral saving College. saving the electoral college saving the electoral college. Thank you, Robert. It's been thank you. You're welcome. And it's been another edition of WIP Sunday. Stay tuned for Sports Talk with Sunny Hill. If you can't, nothing left to say, but see you soon.